I'm not just making shit up over here. Hey, what's up, dudes and dudettes? It's the Murrah Scriptura podcast once again, and today I'm going to be doing a little Q&A type thing. Uh, I'm going to be taking questions and comments that I've gotten from the uh, Twitter sphere and sharing those with you. I've already answered them on Twitter, but I thought it'd be beneficial to uh, share them on the podcast format as well. I will post links to those Twitter conversations in the show notes so you can check them out yourself if you want to. All right, first up is JC Murphy. His Twitter handle is at not that underscore JC. I had posted a a link to my blog post on the Ahud cycle uh, for the Northern Book of Judges. And he had left a question and he says, I think it's problematic to see everything in the Bible as counter narrative. How do you regulate the mere reading method so that it's uh, new hammer doesn't make everything a nail? All right, so this is a, I think this is a common question when it comes to mirror reading. It's, uh, you know, how do you, how do you limit that speculative, uh, what people feel is a speculative nature of mirror reading? I responded and said, for me, it's about building causal connections. If I mirror a biblical phrase, then I look for causes or effects that phrase would have if it were true. If I find none, then I don't mirror it, or I'll admit not being confident about it. Ideally, I try to focus on building a causal chain, and if a logical, coherent, opposing narrative organically emerges from that, then I am confident in the mere reading. I do make some inferences, but I try to be transparent about it. Uh, Those statements are colored in blue and green fonts in my causal chains. I'm open to the idea that some parts of the Bible are not responding to anything, but my method of mere reading uh, should reveal that should reveal that if that's the case. But so far, everything I've mirrored, mirrored has produced an opposing narrative. Right. So that's uh, that's probably something I don't really do. I don't I don't think I've really articulated that well or made that clear enough. And that I'm not you know I'm not just making shit up over here. You know, I'm not saying that JC is, is saying that about me. Um, JC has made some nice comments about my work in the past. And I really appreciate him. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't want people to think that I'm just, you know, I'm going to mirror this text over here and mirror this text over here and then I'm mix it all together. And then, you know, voila, I have this opposing narrative. That's not, that's not how I, I work. Uh, I have a methodology that verifies uh, whether a text should be read. And that is a use of uh, what I call causal chains. And it is, it is the basis, it is the foundation of my, my, rear, my mirror reading. I almost, uh, when I started my website, I almost called it uh, causa scriptura instead of mirror scriptura because it is such an integral part of my mirror reading process. So I think in the future, I'm really going to be, when I talk about, um, when I talk about my work, I think I'm going to be uh, referring to it as a mixture of mirror reading and what I'll call causal reading. Because when I mirror a text, I mean, I really don't know initially if it should be mirrored or not. And so I'm looking for evidence of whether it should be mirrored. And that evidence I look for primarily is something to do with a cause cause and effect uh, involving that text if it were mirrored. So I think a good uh, example of this is in the Jacob cycle, where the biblical text is saying that you know Laban Laban and, and Jacob had had a really good relationship now that Laban uh, regarded Jacob with favor 
And so, you know, do we mirror this? Do we mirror this and say, well, the opposing narrative was said that that Laban didn't regard Jacob favorably. You know, they didn't have a good relationship. So if we if we mirror that, then we'd be looking for either causes or effects that that mirror, mirrored text would would uh, show if it were true. And if we look, we do find uh, evidence in the text that would support that evidence, that would support that mirror reading. And that evidence may be mirrored or or you know maybe mirrored itself or not. But we do we do find the biblical text talking about how how Jacob stole. Uh, Laban's uh, gods, and so that would be that would be one reason why Laban wouldn't regard Jacob with favor is because uh, Laban thought Jacob stole his gods. And of course, the biblical author is going to provide an alternative explanation for that, uh, saying that you know no, it wasn't him. It was uh, it was his wife, and it was just uh, just a big misunderstanding, thinking that Jacob stole them, and. You know, it also biblical author addresses the issue of well, did Jacob uh, steal his uh, his steal his daughters? And the biblical author is going to provide an alternative explanation for that. No, he didn't steal them; he was married to them. And so you just try to piece together uh, these cause and effects chains. So you know, even those those causes may have effects, and that effect me. may have more effects and that effect may have more effects. And so you, you know, ideally you want this chain of cause and effects that all string together. And then your, your opposing narrative will just emerge organically out of that. So when I'm doing my work, I don't really, I don't really focus on, okay, what is, you know, how, what, how can I create a, a opposing narrative out of this? I'm really focusing on what are, what are the causes and effects? How, wh- is there a causal chain that can be formed here? Now, those causal chains aren't always easy to find. Uh, you know, that, that, initial, that initial phase may involve a lot of speculation. It may involve, uh, involve a lot of crazy ideas. And you can kind of see that right now. I'm doing a series on uh, the Yahwist notes. And it's really, if it's focusing just on that first phase of mirror reading where I'm just throwing stuff out there uh, just to see, well, what are, you know, trying to get a feel of what, what the possibilities are in terms of cause and effect. Uh, but in the end, all of those ones that, uh, that don't hold up that don't fall into cause and effect, they have no validation through the cause and effect chain, I will do away with those. Now, sometimes there's a cause or effect missing. You know, I have this long, long causal chain and there might be an effect missing right, like right in the middle of it. So I'll have to infer that just to connect, you know, connect those two chunks of, of causal chains. Uh, so I'll infer that there. And I think that's a, that's a good inference. But uh, in my blog post, I will mark that infer- inference with a blue blue text so that you know that's what I've done. And so I'm, I'm not as certain, uh, you know, with the blue text as I am as, as the rest of the text. So I, I really try to be transparent in that way. But that is the, that's the process and the methodology that I use to keep my mirror reading in check and to keep it from... Um, keep it from becoming too speculative. Now, ideally you'd, you'd want, uh, 
you want some kind of external evidence to support support that, you know, of course. I mean, yeah, that'd be that'd be great. But uh, you know, it's 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 good when you can find it, but it's it's just not going to happen all that often because. Most of the time, the biblical authors are responding to situations that are uh, local to their local to their tribal area, and it doesn't usually involve these, you know, epic historical situations. And you know, in addition, you know, they may be responding to opposing narratives that are oral tradition tradition so there's not really going to be any evidence even um there's not going to be any evidence because there was never any text uh written down in the first place all right so jc's next uh response is can you give me an example like the process for for providing a mirror of the story of ahud so I responded, did you already look at the causal chain um, in the blog post I had posted? Uh, also, there's an embedded spreadsheet at the bottom where you can see how I categorize each phrase. So this is probably something I don't really do well enough in my, in my blog post to show that causal connect, connection aspect or make it, make it more palatable, I guess. You know, my podcast is for more of an overview type thing where, where it's uh, really ex- explaining things, but it doesn't really get too much into the cause, like the logical causal connections that I'm basing my me reading on. That is in my blog post, but the blog posts are kind of abstract because all you see uh, especially in the beginning, is just the causal chain. And there's really no, there is an explanation, but I, I don't think people really um, take the time to read that read that section. And it's just, I think it's probably hard hard to grasp for most people, if they're, especially if they're just new to my material and they're just skimming and looking for, you know, you know the basic gist of what I'm trying to say. But in my blog post, I have the causal chains in there. Uh, but without an explanation, uh, and you know, it's, it might seem kind of abstract. Abstract, because my my blog posts are a causal chain, and then a commentary on each on each cause and effect, and then below at the very bottom, I have a spreadsheet which which lists all of the uh, all of the phrases that I've either you know mere read or echoed, which is just not mere read basically. Or if they, or if it was alternative explanations, or whatever, whatever, however I categorize them as part of that mirror reading, but I can see how it can be difficult for uh, people to piece that all together, piece that the spreadsheet to the causal change, to the mirror reading, to the opposing narrative. I can see how it's hard to follow, and so I'm working on trying to present that information better, trying to. Uh, show it in a way where it's easier to understand, and so I, you know, I'm still I'm still experimenting with that. You know, my blog post, you know, as they are now, it's really it's for me, <laughs> it's for me to understand because if I don't if I don't uh, build those causal causal chains, then I, I I get lost, I get lost in the narrative, and I you know I can't tell I can't get oriented where I'm at. So, you know, initially I structured it that way so I could keep all my ducks in a row. All right, so I continued. As far as my process goes, usually I read the narrative several times and I can usually put together a basic causal chain in my head, which I'll then jot down. Then I create the spreadsheet, then a detailed causal chain, then commentary, then the podcast. 
if you're looking for what happens in my head, I don't remember exactly. It just goes something like, uh, and this is referring to the Ehud cycle. Uh, Ehud was the Benjaminite. You know, that's, that's what the Bible says. So if we mirror that, it's I'm questioning in my head. I'm going, well, was he not a Benjaminite? And why would somebody say that? And is there anything in the text that would answer that? So, you know, is there, is there a cause or effect that is in there that, that would be in there because that is is because that was being mirrored in the opposing narrative so and and you know in large part that's that first phase is largely intuitive i'm I'm just starting to break down um you know how, how i'm doing that making making it more methodical uh especially my, my with uh i'm doing the yahweh's notes and uh right now and i'm i'll put a link to that in the show notes as well and I'm, I'm realizing with with the Yahweh, he has his own little tricks of the, of the trade. Uh, you know, I mean, the Yahweh uses a lot of the same tactics and strategies that the, uh, you know, the Alois uses and the Northern Book of Judge uses. But he also has a unique flavor as well. One of the things that's become obvious is, is any type of ambiguity in the text. If I come across some commentary talking about how, well, this phrase can be taking taken a you know a number of different ways it's ambiguous and we're not really really not sure how do you take it or it's an it's an oddly structured phrase in the hebrew that type of thing that's usually an indication that the yahweh was taking a phrase from the opposing narrative and putting it into his own narrative and then spinning that and so that gives him you know that gives him from a perspective of, of propaganda, that gives him an out by saying, oh, you, th- you, you thought that phrase meant that? Well, it actually means this. And so we can take elements from the, uh, from the opposing narrative and, and make it his own. You know, does that make sense? I, don't, I feel like I'm just being more confusing here, but uh, hopefully that clarifies things and you know, gives, gives my mirror reading a little more credibility. All right, so JC continues. Uh, it's definitely an interesting and useful method, uh, very useful for narratives incorporating multiple sources. Uh, but for example, it doesn't seem to me like it would be very useful to say there was a counter narrative out there saying Nimrod uh, wasn't a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Because the biblical text says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. So I think this is another common response I get to my mirror reading. It's like, okay, it's cool what you've done, but what about this? And so I haven't, uh, I haven't mirror read it, the whole Bible. So, uh, you know, I can't, I can't, I do my best to answer them, but I, I feel really uncomfortable, uh, you know, saying it's, it should be mirrored this way or that way without actually going through my, my process of the entire uh, source or book. You know, so my response was, well, why not define useful? My first guess would be that the counter narrative said that Nimrod was a mighty hunter. So it's agreeing with the, the biblical text there, uh, just not before Yahweh. But I would need to find additional text to support that. And related to this, uh, Twitter, Twitter-er, Angry X Homeschooler, uh, his handle is at, I think it's supposed to be Christophe or Christ of A. Maybe he's Canadian. Actually, he's from Michigan. He's a fellow. I'm from Michigan as well. So I grew up from next to Canada, right across uh, right across the river, St. Clair River. But anywho, uh, he has a website called thefistruth.wordpress.com. And he has a great article 
called The Fuck is Nimrod. Actually, he has uh, asterisks there instead of fuck, but I don't know how to say asterisks. So, um, pardon my French. Anyway, he has a, uh, this blog post talks about how uh, Nimrod uh, may have been a blend of of the god Ninurta and the king Sargon of Akkad, Akkad, I'm not sure how to say that, Akkadian, I guess it'd be Akkad. So this is another thing too, that that saying about Nimrod is also a, uh, it's also described in the Bible as a saying. And so typically when that's the case, uh, the Bible is taking that that saying verbatim from the opposing narrative and then spinning it in a different different direction to explain it in a different way, uh, in a different way than the than the opposing narrative was. So I responded to angry ex homeschooler and I said, "Yeah, in, in quotes like that, the biblical author is almost always spinning an alternative excl- explanation for the quote." He responds exactly. Some Ninurta and and analog was probably worshipped and called a hunter before Yahweh. Jay combines that with Sargon because of monotheism. So pretty interesting article, uh, blog post. So check that out. If you get a chance, I will post that in the show notes as well. All right. So going back to JC, he says, uh, do you just infer from the text as you read it, uh, whether it can be mirrored, whether it could have a counter narrative? Are there any specific texts you haven't been able to mirror, mirror read? Yeah, so, um, well, I, I replied, if by text you mean text within a book source, then no, I don't mirror every phrase. If you mean different book uh, slash sources, then I haven't run into one that I haven't, that I can't mirror read. I may not be able to mirror read Proverbs, but, Proverbs, but I haven't tried yet. Uh, so, but even with Proverbs, see, the thing with mirror reading is that there's also a, like a spectrum in terms of like specificity, specificity, <laughs> um, something like Proverbs, I don't think is going to be responding to really like a, a narrative per se, uh, but more of a philosophy. So it's like a broader, a broader scope. So it's not going to be as, as specific. It's going to just going to be challenging, uh, a type of philosophy, so it's it's not going to be it's not going to be the same as what as what uh, I've done in say the Eloist or the Northern Book of Judges, uh, but it'll be a little bit different. I've, I've I think the same thing is happening with Ecclesiastes. Uh, I've done a cursor, curs, cursory mirror reading of Ecclesiastes uh, on my blog, and uh, so I think that is also responding to a. Uh, you know, trying to counter a uh, philosophy uh, way of thinking at that time, and so you know when you're rebuilding, when you're mirroring, mirror, mirror reading that, you're not really, you're not really reconstructing the opposing narrative as it was the opposing philosophy. All right, so that does does it for JC. Thank you so much, JC, for interacting with me on Twitter. Uh, everybody out there, make sure you follow him on Twitter. And next up, we have uh, Doug Carpenter. His handle is Doug Carpenter Five. That's the, the number five, not the word five. And he responded to my post: uh, Bernard Lamborell versus mere reading. Uh, and he says, "Why was the scribe intent on political propaganda, and yet it would seem counterproductive to that propaganda to write such negative aspects of the king or Yahweh?" Uh, see, so you know, my thing is, well, there's a different reason for each instance usually. 
Uh, so I asked him, I replied, can you be more specific, please? It depends on what verses, verse verses you're referring. And so he says, Second Samuel 11 to start. Right, so this is Second uh, Samuel. Second Samuel eleven is about David and Bathsheba, and you know David bangs Uriah's wife and then takes out Uriah. And so, how is that? How is that good for for David? If 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 the scribe is trying to promote propaganda and make David look good, then you know that doesn't make any sense. So I replied, well, I haven't mere read that one yet, but my initial guess is that it's about Solomon and the opposing narrative that was saying he was son of Uriah. If David's uh, reputation has to take a hit to solidify Solomon's kingly line, so be it. So, you know, along those lines, I, I think I think that portion was written after David's life. And so David's not around to really defend his reputation. Uh, you know, the, the scribe wants to protect uh, David's reputation as as much as he can but if it means you know David has to take a hit for Solomon to be promoted then that's that's going to be worth it we see the same thing in the northern book of judges where um, where King Saul takes a hit in order to promote Jonathan and that's when Jonathan had taken his uh, staff and eaten the honey even though Saul had uh, prohibited it uh, prohibited prohibited his troops from from eating anything and so Saul is is portrayed as being unrational or irrational and and unwise and Jonathan is is promoted as being innocent of the situation all right so that does it for Doug thank you Doug very much for interacting with me on Twitter uh, next up we have Laura Robinson. Uh, Laura does a podcast with Ian Mills and uh, it's called New Testament Review. They review uh, New Testament books. They are both uh, PhD uh, students, candidates. Not sure what the proper term, New Testament gurus. Anyway, uh, Laura, Laura responds to my post uh, about the Deborah Barak and Jael uh, cycle. Uh, she says, so I'm no OT expert, but it doesn't, but doesn't it seem more likely that the Cicero slash Jael story was written out of a traditional or out of traditional oral material fr uh, from the song of Deborah? Well, I think Laura's being a little modest there. She may not be an Old Testament uh, scholar, but I, she probably knows more, more about the Old Testament than most people. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I agree with her. I wasn't really sure what she was talking uh, talking about or referring to at first, but then, you know, I realized in my podcast, um, and, well, I'll just read uh, what I wrote here. Uh, I initially thought that the song was written later than the narrative. Uh, one or both c could have been based on an earlier oral tradition. Mere reading would only indicate that the final form of both were written around the same time, since they both address the same political concerns. So, yeah, so I, I, I at first I thought the song uh, may have been written after the narrative uh, part. And that was because in the narrative part, I, I found some some earlier... You know, the Northern Book Judges is taking previous hero stories and and spinning them in a, in a different direction. And so you can see bits and pieces of those previous hero stories in the Northern Book of Judges uh, text. 
And so I saw that in the narrative portion, but I didn't, I didn't see that in the song portion at first. And it was, it seemed to be strictly addressing the political concerns uh, of uh, the writer of the Northern Book of Judges at the time. And I didn't really see any earlier clues of, of that earlier, earlier narrative. Uh, but but I did later. Even as I was report, uh, recording that podcast, I was I was picking up on on things that I just I, I, d- I didn't uh, register for some reason. And so yeah, I'm yeah I'm completely open to the the idea that the song was a earlier uh, oral tradition and and everything else was built on top of it. Uh, but thank you, Laura, for interacting uh, with me on Twitter. Everyone, be sure to check out their their podcast. The, the name, again, is New Testament Review. And they actually did an episode that deals with me reading a little bit. Uh, J.L. Martin uh, was the episode, so be sure to check that one out. All right, so the next uh, tweet I want to address is uh, wasn't a question. It was a blog post by Bernard Lamborel, and he had responded to my blog post, which was Bernard Lamborel versus mere reading. His was entitled uh, Cognitive Dissonance, and I will, uh, I'll post a link to both of our blog posts uh, in the show notes if you'd like to check those out. But I really appreciate uh, Bernard. Uh, Bernard really took the time to try to understand uh, my perspective, my logic, and um, you know, kudos to him for doing that. And I just want to let him know that I took uh, I took a lot of time on his book. I, I read uh, sections of his book uh, quite a few times. I read the uh, section entitled An Ongoing Scholar Debate. I probably read that section close to 10 times. So really trying to understand uh, Bernard's perspective, his view, uh, even though I, I, I didn't want to, uh, or even though I don't, I, I don't agree with his position, I wanted to make sure I gave him a fair shake. And uh, I appreciate that he gave me a fair shake as well. And I took some time to, to you know, even though I, I, I disagreed with him, I, I tried to uh, mirror read specifically to uh, support his position just to see if I could do it. And, uh, you know, I mean, ultimately my, my conclusions uh, don't agree with his, but still uh, still enjoy interacting with him. So his, his response was so gracious, I almost feel guilty critiquing it at all, at all but I, I just want to clarify a couple things and challenge a couple things and I, I won't uh, I won't go point by point uh, throughout his whole post uh, since he didn't he didn't do that to mine so um, uh, I want to start with uh, a, a part in his post where he's talking about what I said the Abraham cycle was about so I'll, I'll just quote what he said the Abraham cycle well he's quoting Right. He's quoting me in his in his uh, post. So this is really my quote. Uh, The Abraham cycle is primarily concerned with resolving issues between the Israelites and the descendants of Abimelech. And that's that's true. I do think that. But that's only in terms of the Alois source. That's not uh, the Abraham cycle. The the Yahwist in the Abraham cycle has he has a different uh, he has different concerns. And I should have I should have mentioned that, but I I'd written that part in the Elois section, and uh, you know I just I just assumed, and I didn't I didn't I didn't clarify that as I, I should have. Actually, I was I was copying pasting some of that material from my previous post, and it just that slipped past me. So I just wanted to clarify that. 
And the next thing I wanted to address was, um, you know, really a point where Bernard and I diverge probably the most is, you know, how, how we view how we view the text itself. I view it as uh, multiple sources and he views it all as, as one. Yeah, well, at least, in, at least in terms of uh, Genesis 12 through 25. So let me just read what, what he wrote. Uh, he said, my, my critique of mere reading would, would therefore be the same, the same one I would level at any other textual analysis, analysis method. The fact it, re- it solves a textual problem doesn't mean it can solve all problems. By conjecturing too much on the prior existence of these books, I feel there is a risk for one to get carried away and lose sight of the fact that the only text we really have at our disposal and that needs to be explained is Genesis 12 through 25 rather than the books of J, E, and the Bridger, which are the sources that I I see the text is consisting of. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's difficult for us to engage each other on this point because uh, I'm not, I'm not a source critic and Bernard's not a source critic. And we kind of, we kind of rely on other scholars to uh, build our work around. But uh, having said that, you know, I do think that Bernard focuses a little too much on uh, Wellhausen's uh, documentary th- uh, hypothesis and hasn't really dealt with uh, later later scholars, uh, you know, building off off of the original hypothesis. Uh, well, at least he doesn't he doesn't um, talk about that in his book. At least the you know opposing views. He does he does talk about scholars that uh, don't agree with the. Uh, document document Wellhausen Wellhausen's documentary hypothesis but you know I'd really like to see uh, Bernard interact with some some source critics some some experts in this uh, source critic area and to his credit you know he does he does want to and I know there's been uh, work to try to get Stephen DiMattei and I think that's still in the still in the works I think that'll uh, will happen eventually but you know the thing is, I, you know, I used to be, I used to be at the other extreme. I was, I, I believed in what you know was sometimes called the one primary history. I, I believe that uh, Genesis through Second Kings minus Ruth was the work of one author. And when I was when I was mirror reading, and you know, I started mirror reading in the New Testament. So when I moved to the Old Testament, you know, I was going to hit I was going to hit Genesis, and I was going to I was going to use mirror reading, and I was I'm going to prove I'm going to use mirror reading to prove this one uh, primary history, and that the documentary hypothesis is false. And mirror reading itself changed my mind on that very issue because when I started mirror reading, it was it was splintering all over the place. And you know, so that's that's an additional reason why uh, I believe in multiple sources, is because not only the scholarship, but uh, because mere reading itself supports the idea. Because if 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 it what if there weren't multiple sources, then mere reading wouldn't provide uh, uh, an opposing narrative for each of those sources for each of their time and context. And when you try to mirror it as a whole, it, it goes all over the place. It's 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 responding to too many different things. It do, it doesn't make any sense. And so I you know I think multiple sources has has for me has a double verification. Not only do I think the uh, you know the scholarship supports it, but I think mirroring supports it. So it's it's kind of a, a double verification for myself. As a side note, uh, am, amateur exegete in I think it was Reformed, Reformed boy, <laughs> uh, 
had an interaction over this this topic of uh, you know multiple sources, Wellhausen's uh, original documentary hypothesis. So I'll post uh, I'll post some links t- to that in the show notes as well if you want to check that out. So moving on, uh, the next point I want to, to say is just that, uh, you know, Bernard does does say I have a good point when I point out that um, Hammurabi impregnating the, the, uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, would would have been unusual at that time. It, usually that's that type of thing is done through offering the daughter in marriage. Um, and. Uh, Bernard seems to to give me that, so I want I want to return the favor just a little bit and say that the three strangers that meet with Abraham uh, right before the destruction of Sodom, I think that there are some human human tendencies, human characteristics there, as if they were human, and um, you know I didn't really. I couldn't really articulate as to why that was. That's why I didn't really say anything in my in my post about that. But you know, I can see, I can see, I can see that they that though that they may have been based on human characters originally. Now let me qualify that a whole bunch. I'm not saying that I agree with uh, Bernard's uh, theory here. Uh, because even if it was, if even if the, so if they were originally humans, I would only say that they were originally humans in the opposing narrative. And I don't think it was Hammurabi, uh, but I think Yahweh was already viewed as God by the Yahwist and, and, and he simply injects Yahweh, uh, into the place of, of one of these strangers. And so that's, that's how that happened. If in fact they were originally human uh, characters, which at this point I think is is speculative, but you know I'm willing to say you know I can see some humanness in there. Uh, so the next issue deals with uh, the the use of the names Yahweh and Elohim. So I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna read what Bernard wrote. He said, meanwhile he that's me rejects my suggestion that Yahweh should always be associated with the anthropomorphic character in the text. He writes this gradual. Amalgamation of the terms Yahweh and Elohim allows Bernard to switch out Elohim for Yahweh wherever it suits, wherever it suits his needs based on later scribal error or bias. Actually, I didn't. This is still Bernard. Actually, I do not switch out Elohim for Yahweh. What quote wherever it suits my needs. What I am proposing is to systematically associate is to systematically associate the anthropomorphic figure with Yahweh and the immaterial one with Elohim. The switch is therefore not left to anyone's subjectivity, but follows an objective rule. I recently demonstrated that the dissociative exegesis gives us a 93% confidence level that the usage of these names in their particular context is intentional and not accidental. So fair enough, I took a little too much liberty in that critique. Bernard does use a systematic approach to replace the names, but I think we're I think we're a little bit closer here on this than than it seems at first glance. Because uh, I agree I agree with Bernard that the use is not it's not random. Um, so you know I'm with him on that. 
But I think he's making a false dichotomy in saying that, well, either it has to be random or it has to be uh, systematically associated with these, uh, with the immaterial uh, or the anthropomorphic figure. I think there are reasons why the Taoist would use the term Elohim. Uh, and this and this was where the supplementary hypothesis really comes into play, because the supplementary hypothesis allows the Yahwist to use the term Elohim because he's building uh, he's building on top of Elohim's work. Uh, so it's not uh, in Wahazen's theory; it's these two separate, uh, you know. The Elohist and the Yahwist are two separate uh, sources completely, and then they're just spliced together. Whereas supplementary hypothesis says that, okay, the Elohist was developed independently, it existed, and then the Yahwist came along. He's aware of the Elohist's work, and he builds on top of the Elohist's work. So why would the Yahwist use the term Elohim? And I think it is to in order to combine the two, uh, the two identities. So I think the Yahweh does this in uh, strategic places, even though he uses the term Yahweh mostly. And when it comes to the Elois account, he doesn't change the Elois account, but he does inject uh, the name Yahweh into the Elois account. And then occasionally he'll, he'll use the term Elohim in his own accounts and his own uh, uh, creation. And I talk about this in the Northern Book of Judges, which was written before the Yahweh. Uh, he he does this as well. He uses uh, he uses the, the term uh, Yahweh and Elohim to try to combine those two identi- identities. All right. So the last issue I want to talk about uh, is in regards to where Yahweh came from. So in my post, I talked about how Yahweh seems to orig- orig- originate it from Edom because the biblical biblical uh, authors seem to be responding to that uh, to that opposing narrative. Bernard disagrees with this, and he um, he offers support in Genesis for his his theory. And he he wrote uh, the biblical reference I am using, in addition to many other clues, belongs to the prelude of the story Abraham, and is rather unambi- unambiguous. Uh, and he quotes uh, Genesis ten, Genesis ten ten, which says, "And the be- and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and." Kalnei in the land of Shinar. This verse clearly states that the beginning of Yahweh's kingdom was Babylon near Akkad in the land of Sumer, which is precisely where Hammurabi's reign began. But I don't think it's I don't think it's clear at all. So if you look at Genesis uh, ten nine, the verse before it, it says uh, it's talking about Nimrod. He was he was a mighty, it says he was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before before Yahweh. And so I can see what Bernard is doing there. He's, he's saying, well, the when it's referring to the kingdom in, in the next sentence, it's referring back to Yahweh in, in the previous sentence. But given the context, it's talking about Nimrod. And so uh, I think it's talking about Nimrod's kingdom. And I think I don't I've never heard of anyone else not take it that way. So, you know, unless I'm missing something here, I, I would just have to disagree with Bernard on this point as well. All right, so that does it for Bernard's post. Um, but you know, let me let me just get down to the brass tacks of what uh, what the difference is here between Bernard and I. Well, and at least what I think. You know, so Bernard's over there, and he's saying, "Look, I've got this data from I got this historical data, and this historical data it lines up with the biblical data." 
Uh, you have these points of similarities of, of historical data and biblical data, and look, they match up, and they're in chronological order. And what's, you know, what is the, you know, this can't be coincidence. What are, what are the odds of this just happening by chance? It's, it's an impossibility. And he feels, you know, if people just understand this, that they would come to uh, agree with his, with, with his theory. And although I agree, you know, I think it's, it is something, you know, it's better than nothing, but I, I do have an issue with it, uh, only because I've dealt with, uh, allegorical interpretation in the past. And I think this is similar to, um, well, it's not the same as Bernard, but so let me, let me explain. So I think it's similar in in Bernard's respect in that allegory has a set of data so it'll be uh, let's say uh, new testament data points and it'll, we'll match it up with old testament data points and you know bada boom bada bing you know this is this can't be coincidence now bernard's theory is not not allegorical but it, it is similar in that it it is basing its uh, you know it's matching up points of of similarity so instead of new testament data and old testament data he has historical data uh, and biblical data and he's matching those up and so i think it's 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 very similar but i think the human mind has a tendency to make uh, uh, matches where matches shouldn't be made. And I think the human mind gives credibility more than it should to those type of things. And, uh, you know, I've written a blog post uh, entitled uh, A Call for a uh, Methodology for Allegorical Interpretation for just this reason. Because I've dealt with too many allegorists who are like, oh, look at all these data points, they all match up. It's, you know, it's beyond coincidence. And at first glance, you know, it does, it looks kind of pretty convincing. But I've proven through mere reading that uh, they're wrong, and um, at least some of the ones I dealt with are wrong. And uh, you know, I think you know the, the latest craze in this is, is Jordan Peterson, and uh, his his applying you know the biblical data points to uh, psychology data points, and I think that's completely wrong. You know, at least, and you know, when I'm talking about this, I'm ter- I'm 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 speaking in terms of, uh, you know, original author intent. But let's say, you know, let's say I'm I'm wrong. Let's say I'm just I'm biased. I've uh, I've had too many bad experiences with allegorical interpretation, and so I'm just carrying this baggage into uh, into Bernard's uh, theory. Even if that were true, I still would disagree uh, with Bernard's theory because I think uh, mere reading provides better evidence. Because mere reading is not based on matching uh, similar data points. It's based on uh, a different type of relationship. And that relationship, uh, well, at least in my mere reading, it's based on the cause and effect uh, relationship that I talked about earlier in this episode. So, uh, you know, the causal re- causal reading that I was talking about. And although, you know, I do use other other um, other ways to ver- verify or support my mirror reading, you know, I, I'm not the first person to mirror read. So, I, you know, I build on, uh, well, the only two people I know that have methodologies are uh, John Barclay and Nijay uh, Gupta. So I build on some of their points, you know, variation and uh, uh, frequency, uh, historical plausibility. Those are the three main ones that I carry over into my my, my own methodology. But I think, you know, f- finding cause and effects, effect relationships uh, is 
likely, less likely to happen by chance than finding data points of uh, matching up data points based on similarity. And I think the, the case becomes increasingly stronger the more uh, cause and effects relationships there are. So, uh, you know, in my work, I, I don't typically have, you know, a cause effect over here and a cause effect over here and the bits and pieces. It is a string of cause and effects. And when you have a string of, of you know, 20, 30 cause and effects uh, data points, uh, that's, that really seems unlikely that that would happen by mere chance. And so I'm very similar to Bernard in my, you know, with my own theory because I'm over here doing the same thing. Hey, if people would only see these, how these cause and effect data points match up, they, they would not, you know, they would, they would buy my, my theory of mirror reading. And I should say, you know, Bernard does talk about how uh, his theory makes better sense of the cause and effect relationship in the um, Abrahamic narrative. And, uh, you know, I think that's really interesting, uh, but ultimately I, I don't think it's enough. You know, it's not enough to convince me, especially in light of my my own mirror reading. So, you know, let me know what, let me know what you guys think. What do you think about Bernard's theory? What do you think about mirror reading? What do you think about, uh, you know, the different methodologies and the data points and all that and everything I've said here? Uh, you know, what are your thoughts? Let me know what you think. There is one other, I want, you know, I want to do a little exercise, uh, before I finish out this episode. And that is Bernard has a list of questions in, in his book. And these lists of questions, I think, traditionally have been answered very poorly. I, you know, I agree with Bernard in that respect, and and so Bernard Bernard provides new answers uh, based on his theory. And so I think I will go through that, and you know, I'll say I'll go through those lists of questions, and I'll I'll tell you Bernard's answers, and I'll, then I'll tell you my own answers uh, from a mirror reading perspective. All right. So the first question is: If there is truly one God, why is he sometimes referred to as Elohim? Uh, God and other times as Yahweh, uh, Lord in the English. And Bernard's uh, answer to this is, in the story Abraham, Yahweh represents a mortal Lord, whereas Elohim refers to the pagan god El. Successive priests, scribes, and copyists invariably use one or the other of these recognized names. Whereas my, you know, as I've already talked talked about, my answer would be, the Yahwist uh, in, uh, injects the name Elohim in strategic, strategic places in order to combine their identities because it is ultimately political propaganda. And so the Yahwist is, uh, that's, that's part of the propaganda that the Yahwist is trying to achieve. He, uh, yeah, this was, this was the other thing that I wanted to talk about is that when the Yahwist is writing, He's trying to combine the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes, tribes, tribes of Israel. And so the northern tribes, uh, you know, the Yahweh is from the southern tribes and the northern tribes already have this, this text, this uh, Elois text. And, you know, the Yahweh can't just say, you know, hey, you know, fuck you, northern tribes. I'm, we're just going to disregard your Elois text, this uh, sacred text of yours, and just force our own beliefs on you. No, he's going to subvert the Elois text, okay? He's going to uh, integrate his own views with the Elois text. And that is the mark of a good political propagandist. All right, on to the next question. If God loves us all equally, why did he give the promised land exclusively to the Jewish people? The Lord made a covenant with Abraham, giving him and his descendants exclusive control over the land of Canaan. As such, this agreement was necessarily limited to Abraham's immediate family and their heirs. 
And my answer would be that there are competing tribes that are trying to encroach upon the land of Israel. And so the Yahwist, aware of this, is trying to counter that. And, uh, you know, so I, I highlight this uh, in the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah um narrative that the Ammonites and the Moabites are trying to lay claim to the land in uh, southern Israel. And so the Awas has a political motivated concern to keep this land uh, within the tribes of, of Israel. And so when the question arises, well, does this land belong to the Israelites or does it belong to the Moabites or the Ammonites or whatever other tribe is trying to lay claim to this land, the best way for the Yahweh knows how to counter this is to say, well, uh, you know, God (laughs) has said that this is our land, so everyone else can, you know, just fuck off. All right, third question. Uh, why was Ishmael, even even as a very young child, not considered worthy by God to inherit the promised land? Bernard's answer is, it was inconceivable that the son of an Egyptian slave woman would be appointed heir to such wealth, as this would have been paved the way to possible Egyptian claims to the succession. By, by fathering a suitable heir to Sarah, the Lord secured greater influence over the region and granted ex- exclusive power to his own bloodline. And my answer would be that the uh, that the descendants of Ishmael uh, were over there saying, "Hey, uh, we're descendants of Abraham too. We get some of this land too." And the Yahweh is like, mm, "No, that's not going to work out because uh, the, we want the Israelites, uh, the, the the descendants of Isaac, to uh, inherit all the land. We don't, we won't, we don't want to give up this land to anybody else." And so he comes up with this with this story. Okay, yeah, Ishmael was a son of uh, Abraham, but uh, you know he's he's excluded. Next question. Why did Lot offer up his two virgin daughters to the angry mob of Sodomites, and why did the latter refuse them? Bernard's response is, he did so to to appease the rebels and to save himself and the messengers sent by by the Lord. But these men wanted nothing to do with Lot's daughters. They cherished their right to honor freedom and independence, and their only intention was to humiliate these government representatives as revenge for having been enslaved. Okay, and, and my answer, which I you know I wrote about in the uh, in the Sodom narrative, in my post on Bernard versus me reading, and that the Awas is 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 concerned. He's trying to manipulate the genetic line, the family line of Lot, in order to exclude the Ammonites and the Moabites, and so this offering up of his daughters is uh, is an excuse to show that they were, they were virgins, that they never that they had never been with a man, and this all ties into uh, cutting out Lot from from the uh, from the inheritance from uh, Abraham's inheritance. All right, next one. If God is merciful, why why did he slaughter the Sodomites instead of trying to save them? Uh, Bernard's answer is Abraham's armed intervention during the war of the uh, war of kings spared the rebellious Sodomites from punishment. As they kept rebelling, the Lord had little other choice than to make uh, an example of them. After they offended his messengers, the Lord decided to annihilate uh, the city. And, you know, I'm going to remind everyone here, when I say Lord, in terms of Bernard's answer, it's a lowercase l. It's referring to the, uh, well, in his theory, it's, it's Hammurabi. It's a human uh, human being. So I just want to make sure everyone was aware of that. 
Uh, I would say that uh, Sodom Sodom was originally destroyed uh, by humans. So I guess Bernard and I would uh, uh, agree on that. Although we disagree on who those who those humans were. Um, I don't know who they were specifically. I mean, they may have been the Israelites. I don't know. But whoever it was, it wasn't uh, politically advantageous for the Yahweh to uh, say that. And so he injects Yahweh into that story in, in order to give credit to, to Yahweh for that destruction. All right, next one. If God forbids in incest, why was Abraham allowed to marry his half-sister? And why did Lot's sons born of Lot's uh, incestuous relationships... Uh, relations with his own daughters become the fathers of the Moabite and Ammonite nations. Bernard's answer is uh, endogamy, endogamy, which was already common practice among royal families, served to pre preserve noble bloodlines and lim limit claims to the throne or the dynasty. Uh, again, I've written about this, it's, uh, about the Lot's daughters. It's, it's the same thing with Abraham's wife. It is a strategy to cut out uh, people from the genealogy. So in in Lot's case, it cuts out any common ancestor that uh, the Moabites and Ammonites would have had with the Israelites by making them direct descendants of Lot. By making uh, Sarah Abraham's half-sister, that cuts out her, uh, her it would be matriarchal uh, line. All right, last question. Why did God order Abraham to sacrifice his own son to prove his loyalty. Bernard's answer, the Lord felt it necessary to ensure Abraham's loyalty, loyalty by ordering him to sacrifice his son Ishmael, born of Egyptian blood from Hagar, who represented a threat to the dynasty. However, this was merely a tactic to test Abraham's loyalty. Uh, my answer here is that I, I would disagree that the son here uh, to be sacrificed uh, was was Ishmael? I think it was Isaac, and Ishmael was a later change by uh, by the Muslims. But I write about this uh, this in the my Elois series. If you haven't checked that out, be sure to do so. Uh, and this uh, this count here has has a uh, double purpose. One purpose is uh, was to address an already existing uh, opposing narrative that Abraham had fight, had sacrificed his his son Isaac. And so the Elois is trying to counter that, uh, saying, no, no, he didn't really sacrifice them. Uh, it was just a test by God, and uh, he, didn't, he didn't do that in the end, and there really there were, there were no witnesses to it. So nobody actually saw uh, Abraham sac sacrifice Isaac. So that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. And this, this seems to be a common strategy of uh, people who don't have a claim to something resurrecting a dead person in order to get claim to something. Uh, we see this with uh, Joseph uh, in my Joseph cycle. I talk about how uh, Joseph is uh, brought back to life in order to give him descendants, in order to give them uh, claim to uh, rule over the Israelites. And I think it's the same here. Tribes trying to lay claim to the land, uh, which was Abraham's land. They were not part of Abraham's uh, uh, descendants, so they resurrect uh, Isaac, who had been sacrificed by Abraham. They resurrect him and uh, make themselves descendants of Isaac. 
So it's a common strategy for political purpose. Uh, the other purpose of this account of uh, sacrificing Isaac was to prove Abraham's loyalty. When Abraham uh, lived near Abimelech, it was there was some question about whether he he still served uh, the God of uh, Israel down there, and so this test this test proves that he did. It's the ultimate test, the ultimate show of loyalty. Even though he was in a foreign land, he still served the God of Israel uh, because he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son. Alrighty, well that's uh, that's all the questions. That's it for today. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Thank you for interacting uh, with me on Twitter. Um, feel free to ask me questions on Twitter and uh, maybe I'll do another one of these Q&A type things again. All right, have a great day.